when you saw George Floyd murdered in the streets of Minneapolis. For most of us, those gut-wrenching images will be carried to our graves. I know that is certainly the case for me. I can remember I was in, it was summertime, uh, May 25th, I, I get a series of text messages and uh, the next day, I'm catching up on text messages, May 26th, Tuesday, and I'm clicking on a link, and it immediately displays these horrifying images of Derek Chauvin, a, a white Minneapolis police officer, with his knee on the neck of a handcuffed and helpless black man by the name of George Floyd. And this officer did not remove his knee for eight minutes. Eight minutes. Video would show us that even after it appears George Floyd stops breathing, another minute and 53 seconds goes by. This also doesn't include the fact that 20 times, over 20 times, George Floyd repeats the words, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. George Floyd's murder served as a tipping point for the nation. Because tragically, his name stands beside the names of Breonna Taylor as cries for justice ring out from Louisville, Kentucky again this week. And names like Ahmaud Arbery and Philando Castile and Eric Gardner and Michael Brown, and Tamir Rice, and Trayvon Martin, and many, many, many other names. And I'll speak for myself, I don't know about you, but his death helped me see that when it comes to the eradication of racism in our nation, we are not as far along as I thought we were. His death helped me see. I have to be different. I need to be a better man, a better Husband, a better friend, a better leader, pastor, yes, a better follower of Jesus Christ. His death helped me see what my friend James Roberson, pastor of Bridge Church in Brooklyn, New York, talks about when he says, there are not three different kinds of hearts when it comes to racism, but there are four different kinds of hearts. The first heart that uh, of course, we are well aware of is the heart of a racist. A racist fundamentally believes that one group is inherently superior than another group. 
So in this conversation that, that white people are superior to black people who are inferior. Racism is a system of ideas and practices that pushes down one race to elevate another race. Now, I hope, pray, and believe that we don't have many racists in the rooms, though perhaps we will be exposed that there are some racist underlying biases or assumptions or that, that, that we need to have exposed and removed. But then number two, the second type of heart is the racially indifferent person. The racially indifferent person says, that's not really my problem. I mean, and after all, like, why are we talking about black and white? Like, after all, let's just be colorblind. I mean, the, the, we, 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 why, are we, why are we so focused on race? Why are we so focused on color? And the racially indifferent person often carries a blind eye to the opportunity gaps and racial disparities among us. As Brian Loritz says, a racially indifferent Christian is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction of terms. Which is why probably for many of us, for probably for most of us, we live in the third category, the, the third heart, which is that of a racial reconciler. Racial reconcilers say, we need to be different. We need to be more equal. Let's create harmony and unity. And for those of us who follow Christ, we understand that there's a, a vision of, of heaven that tells us that people from every nation, every people group will surround the throne of God, giving praises to Jesus. And so we, we want to see people of different ethnicities come together to worship God. We want our church to look more like heaven. We want our homes, hopefully, to look more like heaven when it comes to who's sitting around the dinner table. And yet, sometimes for the racial reconciler, what we mean by that is we want the minority groups to come into our white spaces. Not necessarily willing to go into their space, their organization, their church, their neighborhood. And what George Floyd's death helped me see is that for most of my adult life, I have sought to be an active racial reconciler. And racial reconciliation is not a bad thing at all. We should applaud racial reconcilers. But the message today, as we look to God's heart, to the scriptures, is that being a racial reconciler is not enough. We need to move to the place where we become, yes, anti-racists. This is a new term in some respects that's being thrown out more actively and pervasively. Anti-racists seek to dismantle, expose, and eradicate racism everywhere it is found. Anti-racists are not okay with the racist comment made by a family member or coworker. Anti-racists are not 
ignoring the injustices of massive racial disparities like the wealth gap or mass incarceration. And so my question for us today, whether you're in the room or online, it's not just for today, but it's for every week of this series and for the rest of our lives. Do you hear the call? Do you hear the call? God is calling us to be seekers of justice. And as we think about these four different hearts, yes, the recon racial reconciler to a degree is, is reflecting the heart of God, certainly. But, but the true justice seekers are those that are actively doing their part to dismantle racism wherever it's found. That's what Isaiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 20 are going to emphasize and help us see today. And as we turn to God's word, I just want to say a few things, okay? Number one, I want to acknowledge that I am standing before you today as a white man. You say, well, Pastor Tanner, like, you can't help that? Like, this, uh, yes. But that means a few things. Number one, it means that I am not the most qualified person to, to speak on the issue of racism. Number two, it means that I stand before you as demographically speaking, the most culturally privileged person in the room. It also means that as much as I love my black and brown brothers and sisters, I cannot truly understand your pain. It's what Proverbs 14.10 talks about when it says, the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joys. I can't totally jump into your experience. Yes, I want to learn and grow in my empathy, but I can't truly understand your pain. But then number two, what is communicated in this series may for some of you feel a little too strong and for others of you, perhaps too weak. And our goal is to be biblical, to hear God's voice and to consider not just God's heart, but, but what that looks like in our culture. And then number three, I just want to say, I welcome your feedback what can feel like a, a dangerous, vulnerable thing for a pastor to say, like, you know, like, send me the emails, you know, but, 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 but really, I, I welcome your feedback. Why? Because I don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all together. Yes, I may say some things that, that, that may be a little off or a lot off, and if so, I want to hear from you. Why? Because we are on a collective journey together. It's always better to journey together. But as, as surely as I have some acknowledgments, I also have some encouragements for all of us. I want to encourage you as we process, as we listen, as we consider, to listen with humility. Ask God, God, where do you want me to change? And listen with a heart that is ready to take action, to say, God, show me the specific steps. Don't, don't leave me in the same place, God. Show me how I can take action. And then to listen with a heart of love, 
a heart that desires to empathize, a heart that desires to be sensitive, especially to our black and brown brothers and sisters, for those of us who are white. Because, yes, they carry a different burden. They feel a different weight. Their level of exhaustion is different than what you may be feeling in these times. And so as we turn to Isaiah chapter one, let me just give you a preview of where we're going in this series, okay? Next week, we're going to learn together what it looks like to lament. And then in week three, I'm going to have the privilege of having one of my pastor friends who happens to be the executive director of the Boston Collaborative, Jua Robinson, here with us. I'm going to have a discussion and an interview as, as he shares what, what this looks like at a ground level. There are a few people better in our city than, than Jua when it comes to understanding at a ground level what racism looks like. And, and, and from a perspective of, but, but Jesus is, is calling us to something better. And then finally, in week four, we'll turn to the, the mission of Jesus as, as the deliverer and the bringer and the restorer of justice as we seek to follow him. But today, Isaiah chapter one, we're asking the question, do you hear the call, the call to seek justice as we consider racism and the fierce urgency of now? Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter one. Isaiah writes, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are pr not pressed out but, or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we had, should have been like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. 
I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, here we are, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands out, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not. Listen, your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppressors. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I want to give us three encouragements today when it comes to this call to seek justice. Number one, seek justice to reflect God's heart of justice. Seek justice to reflect God's heart of justice justice. What we find here in Isaiah chapter 1, which is an introduction to the entire book, is that God levels an indictment against his people for turning away from him. The language of verses 2 through 9 are very, very strong. He begins in verse 2 and talks about their rebellion being so great that he has to call heaven and earth as a witness against them. In verse 4, he says they are a sinful nation. In other words, this is not a localized issue, but this problem stretches from border to border. Hello, America. In verses Five and six, God says, I took you to MGH, and the diagnosis is you are sick from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. You're weighed down with iniquity and guilt. You are corrupt dealers. You have forsaken and despised me, though I am the Holy One of Israel. This is why they face the strong discipline of God. He's, he's sending adversaries against them in hopes that it will wake them up and cause them to return. In verse, in verse 9 and 10, he even goes so far to compare them to what was known as the most immoral city, cities in, in the history of the world, Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, you're like that. And what was going on? What was at the, the heart, the root of the issue? I believe we find it in verse 3, where, where Isaiah 
says on behalf of, of God, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Here is their greatest error and our greatest error. They did not share God's vision. They weren't about what he was about. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, makes it explicit and says, Israel does not know me. In other words, they didn't know his heart. They didn't truly understand what God wanted from them. And as we fast forward through the chapter, as we just read, the, the, the primary indictment against them, what they needed to cleanse themselves from was what? Injustice. Verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You say, well, Pastor Tanner, what are we even talking about when we talk about justice? After all, justice, God is a just God. Just, justice is essential to the, the character and the being of God himself. That's why we should not be surprised that the, the Hebrew and Greek terms that, that where we get our word justice from, they appear, are you ready, over 1,000 times in the Bible, 1,000 times. To give you just a very simple definition of justice, justice means setting things right. Setting things right. What, what are we doing? We, we seek justice. We are seeking to set things right. And God is all about it. Listen to these words from Scripture that help us peer into the Father heart of God. In Isaiah 61, verse 8, it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. God loves justice. Psalm 89, verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before him. Jeremiah 9, verse 24, But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, what does God do? He delights in them. God loves justice. God delights in justice. That's why he calls us to be justice seekers, to actually do something about it when there is injustice around us and in our land. For what does God require of you? What, what is good? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God, Micah 6, 8. Amos chapter 5, verse 24 says this, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
you can see here in three of these different verses, you see the, 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 the togetherness of righteousness and justice. Righteousness is about right relationships with people. It's about treating one another rightly with honor and dignity. We need justice because we don't always do that. So justice is the righting of our wrongdoings. It's the setting things right. And all of this, listen, all of this is grounded in God's original design for our lives and his creation as it explains to us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We don't have time to go do a study on those chapters, but let me just give you a quick overview. Number one, God made people in his image. That means Human beings, all of humanity, black, white, brown, whatever color, we have equal worth and dignity and honor before God. Which means we should treat one another with that same kind of honor and dignity. Number two, we we learn that humanity actually comes from the same source, from the same parents, Adam and Eve. So while we have thousands of ethnicities, and by ethnicities we're talking about a social group with common national or cultural traditions, we actually, when it comes to planet Earth, we have one race. That is the human race. Race is a social construct that differentiates people based on physical appearance. And the social construct was constructed to point out and to perpetrate the misbelief that one group is better or superior than another. But in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, what we learn about God, and I love this about God and his plan and vision and intention for us is that he created a world where there was, are you ready, perfect shalom, perfect peace, perfect harmony, human flourishing that led to a joy and a delight. Did you know that the word Eden, the Garden of Eden, it means delight? That's what God wants for not just some of us, but all of us. And so then when it comes to the the mission and the call to seek justice, what we are about is the restoration of shalom. What we're saying is there are some people, some groups of people that because of the injustices against them, they are not able to experience God's shalom in the same way. And we're not okay with that. What we're saying when we're about the work of anti-racism and seeking justice is that my work is a path to their joy. This is all in the heart of God. If we don't get point one of this series, we will not truly come to the place of our full potential to reflect the heart of God. This is what he wants for us. But then as we move through the chapter, we hear a call to seek justice by choosing action over appearance. Action over appearance. You see, if, if we were to 
to, to look at the religious practices and, and the apparent spiritual devotion of these people, we would say these people would be the last people to oppress someone else. They would be the last people to forget the fatherless and the widow. They would be the last people who would be shedding innocent blood and have the blood of people on their hands. I mean, after all, just look at their apparent devotion to God. Verse 11 tells us that their offerings qualified as generous. It says that they brought a multitude, just like offering after offering after offering to God. They looked super devoted to our God. Verse 12 says they never missed church. I mean, they were there like week after week. They kept showing up and they didn't miss a Sunday. Then in verses 13 and 14, it says that they really made a big deal about Christmas and Easter too. Like they they didn't mess a a religious festival or, or celebration. And they were demonstrative and expressive in their worship. They prayed with their hands lifted high. Oh God, can you see me? And everyone else, can you see me? How devoted I am. They were bringing many prayers. They were professional at praying. They even came to fire nights. But God says, I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed at all. In fact, I'm, I'm not only am I not impressed, I am disgusted. Your worship makes me sick because it's empty. There's no substance. It's not true. Your apparent devotion is actually hypocrisy. There was a huge disconnect between what they looked like on Sunday and how they lived on Monday. As Isaiah 29 verse 13 would say, God would say, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. They miss the maxim of Proverbs chapter 21 verse 3 when it says to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice, which is echoed by Jesus multiple times when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What God is saying to his people and what he needs to continually say to us is that the appearance of devotion is not enough. Your love for me, your your vertical worship needs to flow out into your horizontal relationships. If all that you do in your Bible reading and your prayers, and this is so convicting, doesn't actually move you to seek to correct the wrongs done against your fellow human beings, you are lacking a huge part of my heart. And so I think this is a good point to say that when it comes to racism in America, and as a pastor, this isn't easy to to come to grips with or even communicate. But when it comes to racism in America, the church has to own that by and large, we have been on the wrong side of history 
And what's the bigger deal is we've been on the wrong side of the heart of God. If you have any doubts about this, please pick up the book, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. In his work, he helps us see that the church was complicit in perpetuating the racist culture that allowed shadow slavery. People owned this property. Brands on their backs. Families separated. But let's not get it twisted. Racism didn't end in 1861 with the Emancipation Proclamation, nor did it end in 1863 at the end of the Civil War. In the season of Reconstruction, the oppression continued. As early as 30 years later, there were already laws going into the books that enforced legal segregation, now known as what we know as Jim Crow laws. And the church didn't speak up. The church didn't speak up loud enough. Where were they? We moved to the era of civil rights. It was the African-American church, the black church, that was leading the charge. While so many white pastors stood by, silent, in the background. And even today, even today, in so many respects, the church is not leading the way. When in light of the heart of God's justice, we should be the ones at the front of the line with the loudest voices. I mean, Mr. Mr. Tisby would, would help us see that many of our heroes like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, guess what? They were slave owners. Denominations were split and created for the preservation of slavery. We'll talk more about that next week. And even people like Billy Graham. And listen, I love Billy Graham, uh, truly a, a hero in my book. Tr truly was probably doing more than I would have done. I'll just be humble and assume that about myself. He was, he was bringing down the ropes of segregation in his crusades. He was even having Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. join his crusades. And yet, when Dr. King invited him to his marches, Tisby says this, the failure of many Christians to decisively oppose the racism in their families. Can we start with our families, church? If we can't speak up to the people closest to us, listen, shame on us. The failure of many Christians 
to decisively oppose the racism in their families, communities, and even their own churches provided fertile soil for the seeds of hatred to grow. The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetrates oppression. Historically speaking, when faced with the choice between racism and equality, the American church has tended to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. They chose comfort over constructive conflict and in doing so created and maintained a status quo of injustice. And so we pray, God, help us. God, give us your heart. God, let us not continue in the complicity, but make us courageous Christians and a courageous church that will seek to make a difference. And by the way, I know it's hard to give amens with masks. So if you just want to raise your hand and wave it around a little bit for an amen to Pastor Tanner, okay, that will fire me up today because I'm preaching. Thank you. Number three, all right, number, number three. In light of this, we must then seek justice with urgent love. Not only seeking justice by gaining God's heart and seeking justice by choosing action over parents, but we need to seek justice with urgent love. Look at these nine commands in verses 16 and 17. God says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Now, let me just pause right there. This is such good news for us. This is the father heart of God, that God, though we have sinned and sinned egregiously and grievously and greatly, God still says, I will give you another chance. I want you back. Return to me. And so no matter how greatly we have failed in this area, God is saying, return to me. Make yourselves clean. There's an opportunity for change. God is full. He is so much more full of grace and mercy and forgiveness than we can begin to know. But what does this change look like? Command number five, learn to do good. And again, we ask, lest you think I've like chosen a passage just to preach a justice sermon. And it's like, what does good look like? Command six, seek justice. Command seven, correct oppression. That sounds like seeking justice. Um, Command eight, bring justice to the father. That sounds like seeking justice. Pleading the widow's cause. That sounds like seeking justice. God is saying, seek justice. Do something about it. Don't just share a, a post on social media. Like, that's great. That's a step. If that's your first step, we applaud that step. But we can't stop there. What do we need to do today as the church, as Redemption Hill Church? I want to give just a few encouragements to wrap up our time, okay? Number one, we need to examine our hearts. 
We need to examine our hearts. We need to ask God to search our hearts. We need to see our hearts in light of his heart. And we need to then, as we'll talk more about next week, we need to be ready to confess our sin before God and we need to turn and repent. Protests erupted in all 50 states, even leaving the shores of our own nation to other nations. And there must be a protest that erupts in our hearts that says, this is not okay. Enough is enough. But then number two, we need to listen. We need to, and this has been, this has been me over the last few months, and, I'm, and this, is, this, is, this is not a, a, a few month journey. Um, you know, we need to learn. We need to learn. It's gotta be more than a resource and more than a, a book that we read and, and more than a sermon that we hear. This, this has to be a pursuit of our lives to truly understand what's happening around us and the lives of people that we do actually truly care about. We need to learn. Listen, I want to say that racism goes way beyond police brutality. And this sermon, this, this sermon series is not about bashing the police. I think we, you know, I want, we should honor the police and thank God for, for police. Do did they, did they always get it right? Absolutely not. Are there some policies and procedures that need to be modified? I'm sure there are, no doubt. But this isn't about bashing the police. This is about seeing racism in all of its varied forms, which means that we're not just talking about police brutality, but we're talking about relationships, families, organizations, schools, healthcare, the judicial system, public policy, and yes, churches. This is why we hear more and more people talking about not just individual racism, but systemic racism, which refers to the policies and procedures that are baked into structures and organizations that privilege one group over another, that give one group an advantage over another. And we're going to talk a lot about different examples as we move through this series, but let me just give you one just to kind of uh, start to wrestle with, with these racial disparities, the differences between one racial group over another. Did you know that in America, the wealth of the average white family is 10 times greater than that of the average black family? 10 times greater. Is that, let me, let me ask you today, is that mere coincidence? Is that because like one group is working so hard and they're so smart and please, enough is enough. One Boston study uh, conducted by a, a university said that, uh, showed that, that actually the, the average white family in, in Boston has $247,000 of wealth while the average black family has $8 of wealth. I'm saying $8. That's not $800, that's not $8,000, $80, like $8. We can't be okay with this which is why we need to take urgent action from a changed heart. 
urgent action from a changed heart. There is no doubt that their desperate situation and the depravity of their hearts, as well as the nine commands that just cascade successively, one after another after another, God is saying, I'm, just, I'm not looking just for change, like out there someday, like, you know, maybe like after you kind of get comfortable with it and like, you know, you kind of figure everything out, then it's like, then you can maybe take a, a step or a small step. No, God is saying, take urgent action. We can't wait to begin taking steps in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities. Dr. King's words from the March on Washington in his famous I Have a Dream speech still ring loud today when he said this. We have come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. There is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or taking the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. We need to take our theology and our duology, as some have said, to urgent care, and we need some work, and we need some work right now. Because justice too long delayed is justice denied. And so what I want to ask you today, church, is this. Do, do you hear the call? Do you hear the call today? Do you hear God's call today to you, to us? What I love about the heart of God and what I love about, we talked about following Jesus last week, to, to, to seek after justice is to join Jesus in the direction that he is already marching. That's why we cannot be satisfied with being racial reconcilers. And we sure can't settle for the sin, the sin, the wickedness of racial indifference. When God is calling us to seek justice by reflecting the anti-racist heart of God. That's the call today. Let's ask God to take us there. As a church family, we pray. God, we ask that you would burn your heart into our hearts. God, we ask that you would bring a humility and a willingness to recognize where we have sinned and wronged our brothers and sisters. God, even if it be an unintentional, Lord, help us to see it and help us to change. God, we bring ourselves to you. And so God, it's our prayer that today and moving forward that you would do the work of, of making us justice seekers.